The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Hi there, The Enviro Show. It is here on SFM. It's the green, green show on the station. Well, I'm Nancy Richards, and uh, together with Kim Winter and Rob Parkin, we're with you for the next hour. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. And don't forget, if you want to get in touch at any stage or if you want to share information, you can send us an email. We're on enviro at safm.co.za or find us on Facebook. It's the Enviro Show on SAFM. So what do we have for you tonight? Well, because it's that time of year when we all start to do a bit of reflecting back over the last year, a series that we've really enjoyed was the conservation icons. You might remember we've had a few on the show over the last few months. And as I said, I think when we began, it's it's been a sporadic series, largely because uh, conservation icons locally and globally are not out there in their numbers. And in fact, it's only in more recent times with a growing awareness of what's going on here on Earth in terms of climate change and our dangerous consumption levels, careless habits, that a whole new breed, a new generation of people who care is being born. People that we've called environmental leaders. And uh, if you know anyone who you feel qualifies for that, why don't you pop us an email, enviro at safm.co.za. But back to the conservation icons. Well, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be bringing you once again some of our favourites, the ones that we really enjoyed speaking to. Starting tonight with Dr Vandana Shiva. She's based in Delhi. She's an activist. She's also a board member of the International Globalisation Forum. She's written many books, over 20 books, the latest of which is called Making Peace with the Earth. And we'll be hearing from her once again just now. Well, it's also that time of year when food comes into focus, doesn't it? And tonight we're going to be talking to another local activist. He's Mark Fox. His organisation, Activist, has started up a campaign in support of ethical pig rearing. It's called The Whole Hog. Nice little title. Also going to be talking to a supplier of ethical pork products. He's Richard Bosman. And then just because his name came up in that particular conversation, we'll hear once again from small-scale farmer Alex Chola. He's a co-owner of a farm in Stanford, and he's going to talk about his uh, sustainable farming methods. And finally, as promised, also going to be bringing you a series of green reads over the next couple of weeks, and that's in place of our regular green goodie feature. And tonight, the title that we've chosen is called Geology Off the Beaten Track, and I'll be talking to author Nick Norman. All of that lined up, and at the end, what we also hope to do is bring you a song that was specially commissioned by Greenpeace Africa. It was commissioned in honour of the uh, arrested Arctic 30, who, as we understand it, have recently been granted amnesty by the Russians. So, free at last. You're listening to The Enviro Show. Stay with us. The Enviro Show. So first up here then on the Enviro Show from uh, our conservation icon series, Dr. Vandana Shiva. She's based in Delhi and she's just been described as a philosopher, an environmental activist, author and eco-feminist. She's very anti-globalisation and has written many, many books around those theories. One of them is called Vedic Ecology, which draws on Vedic heritage as a way of looking at the world. But her latest title is called Making Peace with the Earth. And when we spoke to her earlier, though, I asked her first how she personally had arrived at her enviro thinking. Well, of course, it's a long story because it's happened uh, over a lifetime. My own uh, idea of my life was as a little, naive, innocent physicist. That's what I wanted to be all my life. But I had grown up in the mountains, in the Himalaya, and in the forest because my father was a forest conservator. So that was also a very deep part of my life. But I hadn't thought of it as a place for work, just a place for life and living. And it was when I saw streams disappear and forests disappear, and that's when this amazing movement started in the 70s, four decades ago, called Chipko, the Hug the Tree Movement, where women came out and said, you can't cut these trees. They are the protectors. They are what uh, give us soil and water and uh, the landslides are being caused because of your uh, looking at the trees as timber mines, uh, the forest as timber mines. So I became a volunteer for Chipko. I learned a lot from the women. Every holiday, I would be doing my PhD, but every holiday I would come as a volunteer. And I would write reports for them because they knew exactly what was going wrong. But to then turn it into English and to turn it into science, that was the little bit of support I could give. And because of my exposure to the issue of monocultures versus natural forests, when disasters took place in 84, two disasters in particular, the Bhopal disaster, 
where a pesticide plant leaked in uh, the city of Bhopal, Union Carbides plant, killed 3,000 people then, 30,000 people since then, hundreds of thousands crippled. And that same year, we had the worst terrorism of that time. I mean, it was the beginning of the modern-day terrorism uh, and extremism uh, in Punjab, in which 30,000 people lost their lives also. And Punjab is known as the land of the Green Revolution. So I asked myself, I was consulting for the United Nations at that point, and I, on conflicts over resources, so I just asked myself, you know, why is there so much violence linked to this kind of farming? So I did research for the UN, wrote a book called The Violence of the Green Revolution, which then threw me into agriculture circuits, even though that was not really my background. And that's where I came to know about the old chemical industry wanting to become the new biotech industry, uh, the Monsantos, the GMOs, the patents, the TRIPS, the WTO, all of it, at a meeting at which I was invited to attend in 1987. So that's the day I decided I would, A, save seeds, any seed I could find, I would just save it, because for me, biodiversity is so precious, life is precious, and the idea of all seeds being genetically manipulated and patented was so abhorrent. And uh, that's what I've been doing since then through Navdanya, the movement I created. Um, Monsanto keeps increasing our work. Uh, some places, they retreat like they have in Europe. Uh, our Supreme Court has just received a technical expert committee saying there's no, there must be a moratorium on GMOs because the safety issues uh, need to be resolved with much more science and much more research. Um, so life carries on with most of it spent in doing things that are beautiful, uh, but part of it spent in resisting the destructive. And for me, a major preoccupation right now is the fact that the, my home region, my birthplace, has uh, had a terrible climate disaster. And there have been uh, heavy rains. The dam building has led to higher uh, flooding. Entire villages where we have our organic members have been washed away. Uh, my team is trying to reach with relief, uh, but the roads have uh, collapsed again. So it'll take them four days before they get to the villages uh, where 90% of the homes were washed away. So in a way, um, in you know, 40 years ago, we stopped the logging. 40 years later, we've got to remind the governments and the corporations that there is an ecological imperative mm. because they think there's only one imperative, greed. And we have to somehow replace the greed imperative with the ecological imperative. The ecological imperative, as you described, the, the Himalayas, it's you're describing that's of the climatic disaster, which seems that yeah. it's come, a, it's, it's been a long time coming. It's not something that happened suddenly. It's as a result of what's been done all those years ago. Absolutely. Um, the trigger, of course, was the fact that there was very intense rain right at the beginning of the monsoon, that a glacial lake burst, and that's a climate phenomenon. And it happened at the peak of the pilgrimage period, so many, many, many people lost their lives. The government estimate is 5,000. On-the-ground estimates are 20,000. And what has added up to this, what has contributed to it, was this, is this insane idea that you can uh, dam up every inch of free-flowing rivers, our sacred rivers, the Ganga, the Yamuna, the Mandakini, the Alaknanda. Um, and second, that's, you know, these pilgrimages which... 20, 30 years ago used to be on foot. Uh, it, it was really about a sacred journey. Uh, today it's about building four-lane highways on these fragile mountains, uh, trying to set up hotels, resorts where there should be not, no building at all. And the combination of this totally non-sustainable development against the knowledge, against the science of the sensitivity of these youngest mountains of the world, amazing if they are stable, but tragic when the soil and the trees and the forests that protect them are absolutely raped so that this crazy idea of a particular kind of development that is only destruction can make way for money-making at the cost of lives. 
What lessons then have been learned as a result of these disasters? Is it time to be changing ways and do you see that that can happen? Well, it's absolutely necessary that we change our ways. There will, of course, be a group of people, you know, there'll be groups of politicians, there'll be groups of businesses and corporations who have had it easy, you know, uh, making money, uh, doing all this. I mean, in fact, I'm trying to prepare a case right now because wherever in the villages we talk, the people are saying it's the hydroelectric project that has caused this disaster and they should compensate for the loss of our homes and our fields and our lives. Uh, the government is getting ready to compensate the corporations because their dams have also been damaged. So there will be people who will want to continue in the old ways. But in my view, it's a very, very small group. The majority of people just want to have a life, a sustainable, peaceful life, so that they can look towards tomorrow without fear. They can look towards tomorrow and look towards the next generation and say, yes, they'll have food, they'll have water, they'll have livelihoods. And there, in my view, there are two key shifts that are needed at this time. First is this, you know, this measure of growth, the GDP was a very clever measure. It was created for the war. It was created so that money could move out of society to buy arms, uh, to finance the war. Uh, and so it really measures how you convert life into money. And it measures how you can cut a tree and make it timber. That is growth. But you plant a tree and protect the forest and protect the mountains. There is no growth measurement for that process, though it is the real economy, and it is the real growth. So the first thing that has to change is the idea of growth. Um, I work very closely with the government of Bhutan, and uh, Bhutan has um, said years ago that we are not going to adopt GDP, we are going to adopt GNH, gross national happiness, the well-being of our people. After all, wealth is well-being. Wealth is not money. It's a total misinterpretation and wrong meaning given to a term. Um, the second thing we have to change is the idea of development that goes with this idea of growth. Mm -hmm. It is not development to blast the mountains. That's destruction. And, you know, my philosophy, my thinking, uh, working with women who are the ones who suffer most but also are in the front line to change, I, I've realized over these 40, 50 years of my activism that capitalist patriarchy, as I've called it, the convergence of the power of capital and the power of uh, patriarchy, it has developed this distorted thinking that destruction is creation and creation is passivity. So women don't work, nature doesn't create, and I think till we solve the psychological damage, we won't be able to change track. And it is really, in my view, a mental illness. Mm. It's a mental illness to count destruction as development. It's a mental illness to say a tree growing is not doing anything, a butterfly or a bee pollinating is not doing anything, uh, women working don't work. Um, and this is ignoring and then destroying such a large part of the real economy of life. Yes, I see how you call it a mental illness. What is the cure for this mental illness? Is it, is it your organization, Navania? Tell us what you're doing to change the situation. Well, you know, because it is a mental illness, I think the first step of sanity is to recognize creativity where it is. To recognize that the soil becoming more fertile when you add compost to it is a creative act, and therefore farming is a creative act. It is not an obsolete occupation that can be destroyed for the land grab that's taking place in Africa or India. Um, I think recognizing women's work and the work in subsistence of small farmers is such an important part of this shift. So in Navdania, what we basically do is we save seeds because the Monsantos of the world want to declare seed as their creation and their invention and they want to patent it when all they do is steal. They, they can't create life. They can steal our seeds, and I have fought cases on biopiracy, fought a case against Monsanto, where they pirated an Indian wheat variety with low gluten to be able to market it worldwide to those who have gluten allergies. Um, so these cases of biopiracy, 
which uh, have also hit Africa. I remember there was a case of a San tribe uh, which used to eat a plant in the desert to suppress hunger, and now Pfizer has a patent on it as an anti-obesity drug. So creativity in the right place ensures that piracy is recognized for what it is and not a creative act. The second thing we do through the saving of seeds is create resilience. So when these climate disasters happen, it is the drought-tolerant or the flood-tolerant or the soil-tolerant seeds that we have saved that are able to rejuvenate lives of people. And the soil, which is now rich in carbon with organic farming, is able to deal much better with too much water or too little water. But because you can't just do this in one aspect, you know, life is interconnected. And I have talked in my new book, Making Peace with the Earth, how just like South Africa has had apartheid based on separation um, on, on the basis of race, we are suffering an eco ecological apartheid with the illusion that we are separate from the earth. Now, recognizing that we are part of the earth and we are part of web of life also means we can't act in fragmented ways. So what Navdanya does is work from the seed to the table. Saving the seed, growing food organically, making sure it reaches people. You might have heard of the tragic death of 23 children yes. eating uh, a meal, a midday meal that was laced with pesticides. Mm. It's so unnecessary because there is no place for pesticide in the food system. And I have, in fact, contacted um, colleagues in Bihar and said, let us start what we do in other parts of India, creating gardens of hope. First, because gardening, I think, is one of the most healing activities. Second, because safe food growing in the schoolyard is not just a source of nutrition, it is a source of learning. I think we are alienating our children so much from the earth and thinking that food is a manufacture which necessarily needs poisons. And as that mindset deepens, people get more and more accustomed to eating GMO corn, which I know is a big issue in South Africa. There is no place for chemicals in food. There's no place for genetically engineered crop. That is why we've written a report called The GMO Emperor Has No Clothes. On no positive fact, do GMOs contribute? They don't give higher yields, they don't reduce chemical use, and they have actually made the lives of farmers more difficult, particularly in conditions of poverty, as in India, where patented seed royalty collection, which it goes hand in hand with GMOs, means seeds get so costly, farmers fall into a debt trap, and more than 28,000 Indian farmers no, 280,000, sorry, 280,000 Indian farmers have committed suicide in the last 15 years as these seed monopolies have evolved. And we go to these areas and both create a suicide-free farming as well as gardens of hopes with the widows. How do you manage to keep... Um to keep yourself above it right at the beginning you said most of the time you spend thing, doing things that are beautiful much of it is sort of combative I'm just thinking you know the path that you've chosen is a difficult one you're up against these giant seed corporations these companies um, it's very difficult for somebody like yourself uh, to do this sort of thing alone how big is your following well I wouldn't call it a following I would call it a network yes and uh, it's it's a different level, so it's different numbers for different things. When I led the marches against agriculture and food being brought in the free trade system called the WTO, the GATT, you know, we'd mobilized more than half a million farmers in India. Um, we've trained more than 700,000 to give up chemicals, to save their seeds, to do an ecological agriculture. Uh, the global campaign on seed freedom, which I think is vital for the entire world, uh, definitely has reached more than a million people, and more and more people are now realizing, A, how big a player Monsanto has become in our lives without our choosing it. Mm. And that's why the marches against Monsanto are multiplying. And secondly, how important the little seed is to our lives and our food system. So it really depends on, um, you know, what scale we are talking about. Yeah. But our network of farmers is about 700,000 in India. 
just not inconsiderable. You know, you also mentioned there that most people want to lead a sustainable, peaceful life. And, and I think that's true across the world, whether or not people realise that sustainability is part of it. But India is one of the world's most populous countries. In fact, it is the world's most populous country. The average person, do you think they have an idea about sustainability? Do you think that they are sufficiently aware of the dangers, the climatic dangers, the, the threat to the environment largely? Well, you know, I can definitely tell you this. 40 years ago, there was much more awareness. Mm. 40 years ago, it was much easier for people to see what is the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. I think these 20 years of what I would call a greed economy has created so much confusion. And it has numbed two very, very large groups of people. The extremely poor who are living in destitution. And even though they get poorer because food is 10 times costlier, you've been removed from your home, so you're living on the streets. On every indicator that makes for life, Things are going down, but our government has just announced that poverty has been reduced by 20% because um, anyone above 27 rupees, which is 50 cents, uh, is not poor anymore. They just change the income level without looking at the expenditure needed to stay afloat and stay alive. Um, people are eating one meal a day. A quarter of India isn't eating. Uh, and yet, on their financial figures of 27 rupees, uh, suddenly poverty has disappeared for 20% people. Uh, the second confusion comes from all these indicators, you know, like the growth indicator. Um, it comes from making you feel you have no option. And then for the other class that's locked into rewards of an amazing kind, you know, we didn't have the levels of inequality that we have today, and I'm sure it's the same for South Africa. And this inequality means there is a group of people getting very heavily rewarded out of destroying the basis of sustenance for the majority. And there is a new collusion between those in politics and those in business. In fact, there is no line dividing the two. There's a total revolving door uh, between our parliament. You know, 30% parliamentarians are now billionaires. They get into parliament to pass laws to favor themselves, and then they carry on doing their industrial work. Um, and I'm sure the story is absolutely the same everywhere. So the consciousness actually is much lower today in the ordinary person than it was 20, 30 years ago. But there is a new consciousness growing among young people. And they are short-circuiting their understanding. And I think that's growing for two reasons. One, they have a much bigger access to information around the world. But two, they can also see this bubble called growth is bursting on them. You know, how many young people thought forever they would earn 100,000 rupees in a software company? And now they're getting the pink slips. So they're realizing this economy won't last. Indeed. And as you say, it's a, it's a global issue. Your book, Making Peace with the Earth, who do you hope will read it? And what difference do you hope it will make? Well, I've realised one thing, even though I, I write still, uh, and I started as a very reluctant writer. I used to get letters saying, I've just read this book of yours. Now I get so many mails saying, I've just seen this YouTube of yours. And in a way, kind of, we are digitalizing ourselves into out-of-book reading, so I have no idea. I, I think students will surely read it because students must read. <laughs> That's part of what you do in university. Um, and I think some concerned people will definitely read it. I mean, people do read the books too, but I notice far more people watch YouTube videos. Do you hope that your government will read it? Um, well, you know, at one level, the government has read it in the simple thing that these are issues, uh, you know, I, I'm not an academic anymore. I don't take time off to write a book for scholarship. I write a book because that's what I'm living. And everything I live through, I'm writing columns in our newspapers. I am doing debates on our TV. So everything that's in the book, uh, individually, separately, 
is there. I mean, I just debated the chief minister of Uttarakhand um, about his still protecting the dams and that model of development. And when will he learn? So even though they might want to avoid listening, the one thing I try and do is make sure they get to listen the truth. Oh, with her thoughts and her words of wisdom there, that was Dr. Vandana Shiva, author of a book called Making Peace with the Earth. And if you'd like to find out more, check her website. It's www.navdanya.org. That's N-A-V-D-A-N-Y-A, navdanya.org. The Enviro Show. And next up here on the show, food. Well, as you know, traditionally, there's a whole lot of eating at this time of year. As families and friends get together and we all share the food of whatever our particular culture may be. And for some, that's jerky and ham. And what we're looking at right now tonight is pork, products from pigs. And raising concerns around the ways in which pigs are reared is activist Mark Fox, whose campaign, The Whole Hog, throws some light on this. Well, he joined us earlier together with Richard, Bo- Richard Bosman, who specialises in ethically produced pork products. But first, I asked Mark to explain the campaign. Well, it's about, first of all, defining the difference between what is free-range pork and what is pasture-reared pork. So a lot of South Africans are waking up to the fact that pigs are extremely badly treated and the free-range alternative is sought. But as we've discovered through the campaign, the difference between free-range and pasture-reared is actually quite substantial. A bit like, uh, a bit like eggs, I suppose. But let's not, exactly. let's not go the egg route because pigs, we've got plenty to say about pigs. Pigs are badly treated. I wonder how many people think or even are aware of how their pigs are treated. Is there a great consciousness, do you think? Well, there's been a significant uh, uptake in terms of the awareness thanks to the SPCA. They've been doing campaigning around the sow stalls, which is obviously a very, very sensitive issue with women who can imagine being locked in a cell and then removed from their newborn babies. So yes, I'd say in South Africa we have been made a little bit more aware recently. Tell us about the sow stalls. Is it? Uh, are we talking? You know, I'm just thinking. Um, a lot of people eat chicken. A lot of eat, people eat pork. Obviously, pork is slightly more expensive. But you know, what what sort of quantities are we looking at? Are there sort of pig farmers who've got rows and rows of sow stalls, a bit like battery chickens? Correct. So um, as Louise Fanameva from Compassion in World Farming pointed out recently. Sow stalls are the equivalent of how chickens were produced in the 90s and the 80s. In South Africa, you couldn't find free-range eggs anywhere. These days, you can't literally find free-range pigs anywhere, except for a tiny little handful of suppliers. Are there any regulations around sow stalls? Well, there are some regulations, and um, they're not generous, let's put it this way. Not generous towards the pigs? Not generous, generous towards the pigs at all. And I would, maybe Richard, you could offer some insight on this. Yes, because you're the man who's actually rearing in a pig-friendly way. No, I'm sourcing ethical pork and using it to make cured meat products. So you're sourcing ethical pork, and as Mark was saying here, there's not a whole lot of uh, ethically produced... Literally a handful of farms. Really? As few as that? Correct, yeah. Where? In the Western Cape or countrywide? There are more up in Gauteng, but there are very few in the Western Cape. I managed to, I have a friend who owns a farm called Glen Oaks outside Hermanus and he breeds specifically for me to my specification um, and his pastures are barley and clover and grasses and the pigs are roaming on 170 hectares of land. The way you sort of imagine normal pig rearing um, takes place. Well exactly, I was going to say that's exactly the sort of image that one has of a a pig sort of bowling around, a pig preferably in, you know, as they say, uh, just having a lovely time and eating all the the leftovers from everybody else's delicious meals, but clearly it's not really like that, generally speaking. Not in the commercial feedlot Mm. environment, not at all. Presumably, I mean the, the key word here is commercial, presumably it's more expensive to Um, let a pig be pasture-reared or free-range? Absolutely. It takes more resources to farm that way. You need more land, you need to plant pastures and rotate your animals because they're quite destructive. They love to eat the roots of the grasses so they can destroy your fields quite quickly. So you need to move them around, you need to have more labour. Fencing is required to keep them from running away. 
and because of their active lifestyle, they take far longer to get to the sort of weight that I would require for the curing process. So on average, a pig that comes to me would be 12 to 14 months old, whereas in a feedlot environment, it would be four months old. So, you know, aside from the fact that the, the pig is going to have a happier life while he's, he she is, is um, bowling around the fields, it's, it sounds like it's going to be a much more costly business, which would reflect quite significantly on the price of the pork and the pork products. It does. It does. It's, but the quality of the meat is chalk and cheese. You can see it in the color. There, there's no smell at all associated with the meat. It's very clean. And the nutritional benefits of the pasture-reared meat are quite different to feedlot meat. Mark, going back to you, because as, as the, the activist, I know that you've got a whole lot of films about um, the way the food is produ produced. Right. And I know that there's one particular food, uh, film that you've got that shows how food is reared for the plate. And I think that there's one terrible photograph right at the end of this poor cow being slaughtered. And I'm just thinking of the stresses that go through an animal's body when they're being slaughtered. I mean, is, is this, um, Richard, is this part of the campaign, the way that the, the pigs meet their demise, the way they go to the abattoir? Is that part of the campaign of ethically reared and killed? Um, Mark, you'll have to mm. yes. interject. I know there is a move to try and have mobile slaughterhouses okay. moving from farm to farm, which then takes a lot of the stress out of the animal's demise in terms of transportation being out of its natural environment. That's correct. Uh, the 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 mobile slaughterhouse is a it's an amazing solution for many reasons, and um, one of the the interesting aspects that we discovered was that it is more often mentioned in government government gazettes than anywhere else. So it seems like our government is actually investigating mobile slaughterhouse solutions more than um, anyone else in the public. Sphere. And why is a mobile slaughterhouse? Is it is it um, does that mean then that the animals don't have to be transported exactly. and packed tightly in trucks as we've seen on the motorways? That's exactly mm. the reason why it's better from an animal welfare point of view. But the government are interested because it helps to empower small farmers. And also from the consumer's point of view, it helps to give you an, an assurance that the pig that you're buying was actually slaughtered at a particular farm. And currently you don't know that because all pigs are going to a particular slaughterhouse and there's not always full traceability as a result. Mm -hmm. Small farmers, Richard, is, are you looking then to try and encourage more small farmers to produce pigs or rear pigs in Absolutely. the way that you would like? Absolutely. Is it a very costly business for them? Sounds like it might it, be. It's a lot more effort and cost than doing commercial pork. Mm -hmm. So you really have to find a farmer who, from an ethical and a quality point of view, wants to breed that way. So hands up anybody who's um, producing pigs in, <laughs> a, in an ethically friendly or an ethical way, uh, they should get in touch with you and they can do that how? I have a website which, which is, is richardbosman.me Yeah. or if you go to the whole hog website you can get contact me through that as well. Okay. So Mark, tell us a little bit about the, the campaign because we, we've heard about some of the issues but yes. the campaign itself is for what? For, for the consumer, for the farmer, for whom? It's um, for the whole ecosystem. Uh, we talk about four legs of the campaign. The initial one, which uh, you've heard about, focuses more on the nutritional aspects. We're going to look now at more of the empowerment side. So finding small farmers who can benefit from the new awakening of the consumer. So one of the examples is a farm in Montague where the actual wine farm owner has given a hectare over to his workers to start a, f a small free-range pig concern. This reduces the stress of the wage increases from the farmer himself and that's his motivation. The workers then have their own small business but are still able to carry on working on the farm. Mm. So it's a solution that I think is going to be extremely attractive to yeah. farmers. And more attractive the more the more ethically ethically reared pork products that can be produced that you know the, the more the better it's going to be for the farmers so we need to increase people's uh the, we need to increase awareness amongst consumers what are we going to do put up pictures in supermarkets of unethically produced We've pork products asked certain supermarkets to and do what's that been but, the but they they won't touch that with a with a barge pole unfortunately restaurants however 
are much more willing to carry across the communication. Do you want to name any names? Are there any restaurants that you know of, Richard? There definitely are. Um, from a cured point of view, um, Spear Wine Estate uh, buy a lot of uh, product from me. Um, the Bay Hotel in Camps Bay. Melissa's as a f- retail chain stock the product. Selected checker stores, selected spas. Food barn. Food barn mm. in Nordhook, the salmon barn front hook. So there you go. So if you're looking for ethically produced pork products, way to go. Just lastly then, Mark, by going onto your website, people can sign up. Can they tick the box? Can they fly the flag? What can they do? They can sign up and very importantly, they can add a comment. They can add Hmm. some of their own personal experiences or their own personal point of view which helps us to then lobby the supermarkets to be a bit more active. I have to tell you that just outside of Stanford, I went to visit a little farm just recently, and they've got a whole whack of pigs that are with all their little ones wandering around all over the place, just having the best life. And I think in my next life, I want to come back and have their pigs, except I'll probably end up as a sausage, but there you go. Do you have a name for that farm? I do indeed, and I will give it to you after this. Okay, great. (laughs) Thank you. Lovely. Thank you very much. Mark Fox, and you can check out his campaign on www.activist.org forward slash bacon. And Richard Bosman of Quality Cured Meats, if you want to find out more, he's richardbosman.me. Well, as it happens, I did know the name of the farmer just outside Stanford, because in fact we'd spoken to him a while back here on the Enviro Show. His name is Alex Chowler, and together with his partner, Tabby Robertshaw, they own a small holding in which they grow and rear all sorts of products to feed both themselves, but also to supply their little restaurant called Grey's in town. Well, I was lucky enough to visit the farm. We've been here on this farm for two years, and we've got... About a, if you take it all in all, about a hectare, including the area that we use for vegetables, chickens and ducks, and then the area where the pigs forage or have free range. What's the plan? Uh, the plan, <laughs> the long-term term plan is to just keep expanding. You know, we've got, we do a little bit of everything. We do, we've got a few chickens, a few ducks, a few pigs and the bees, quite a few beehives. And the idea is to kind of build it up to sort of like a, a sustainable level where we've got an ongoing supply of, of everything, of free-range eggs, of free-range meat, duck, pork, and both chicken in the long run as well. At the moment, we just get free-range chicken eggs, which is one of our sort of like most valuable. But, you know, for us, that's, that's really sort of symbolizes our what we believe in, is being able to have our, eat our own free-range duck eggs. When you say small amount, just give us, let's talk numbers here. How many chickens, how many rabbits, how many okay, pigs? Um, we've got about 30 chickens about 10 ducks but that fluctuates all the time because there's always new ones hatching and uh, yeah but they're peaking ducks so they're bred for eating and you know and also eggs eat the eggs and then uh, you know I I forgot before is the rabbits that's also something that we've just started doing but it's also an easy thing to do and such a easy way of providing naturally ethically produced meat yeah, it's obviously you know nice to have that other facet to farming. Although I never saw rabbits as really a farming. For me, farming is is livestock, like real livestock. But rabbits is it's so easy to do, and and they eat all of the the vegetable garden leftovers, and um, they don't require a lot of space. And the meat is such so fantastic, such a nice quality compared to or sort of like the nearest thing which would be chicken and how that's produced so it really makes a lot of sense to us you say that they eat all the leftover vegetables they don't eat the vegetable because you've got a um, huge vegetable patch i'm looking at yeah. here none of your animals come foraging in here do they um they do if they escape so that's always an like an, an ongoing concern for us and like fixing the fence is an ongoing business and it's something that we often have arguments about i always think that i've done it as completely managed to secure the garden and there's a gap that the piglets find to get in or the chickens just decide that they'll come and just completely put like a nice mulch on all the beds and the chickens love scratching that up. And then, yeah, we had an escape rabbit the other day and he disappeared and, and kept coming too. So it's an ongoing thing. But And then obviously we struggle with the, with the baboons. You know, we, we live in in their habitat and we live it's a harmony thing so we, we, it's not the end of the world it's quite disheartening if the whole garden gets flattened but we seem to manage to still harvest a lot of produce for ourselves and sacrifice 
things to the wrist. Talking of sacrifice, I think both the rabbits and the pigs need to get slaughtered somehow. Not necessarily something you're doing yourselves. No, I mean if we if we're doing it for our own home use, we we do slaughter um, the ducks and the rabbits and the chickens ourselves. The pigs, obviously, because we we um, you can see them running in the field down there, um, all the piglets. Can go and have a look at them now. Because they fork, or we're using them to supply the restaurant, they have to go to a slaughterhouse and then they get a, a stamp to to certify the, the, the meat. So that and also, the pigs is, is slightly more difficult to do <laughs> to do yourself. But then at the same time, we take it to a, f- a small farm abattoir. I know exactly how the how they've been reared and where they go, and so with that we really have no qualms about eating that meat and knowing that this it's really good quality. And there's nothing been done to it. I imagine everything, the, the quality of the, the rabbits and the pigs and the chickens is, must be pretty good because they're all completely free-range. They're eating whatever and as much of whatever that they like. In fact, the rabbits here are being <laughs> shifted around in their wire hutches. What's the purpose of that? Well, we call it a you know, rabbit tractor or chicken tractor. So the, the idea is that the rabbits mow the lawn and if you were to have chickens in there, it's the same concept, the chickens mow the lawn instead of coming with a mower and mowing the lawn and then at the same time they feed them you know they feed themselves and they get most of the nutrition that they that they need from grass if you were to have a similar concept you could have it with sheep you know they you could let the sheep in here into an enclosed area and let them graze the grass and they'd get much of their nutrition that they need the pigs get everything they need from grass that they, they need very little supplementary food so it's the same concept with the rabbits. They can just basically eat grass and then as soon as they've cleared that patch in a few days or so, we can move it on to the next. Talking of foraging, I think you've also got honeybees. You've got uh, how many hives and where are they? We've got about 30. We lost a few in this fire that we had recently. So there's about 30, 40 hives that we've got um, and they're on various farms around where we live in areas where they've got access to fanbos in winter that flowers predominantly in winter and the eucalyptus trees in which flower in summer. So that's how we kind of choose the sites where we where we keep them. The whole point of this is I think you're living for what a lot of people would be an absolute dream, but you're managing to make it commercial. You mentioned the restaurant. You've got a restaurant in town. What's it called and what do you sell there? What are you what are you producing there? Okay, and um, the restaurant is, is called Grey's Slow Food Cafe. So the whole concept is about knowing where your food came from, local food, uh, fresh produce, naturally grown produce. And um, yeah, so in our little farming enterprises is not really commercially viable. You know, we couldn't survive off it, although we, we could live and eat very well. But as far as earning a living, the, you know, the restaurant is a, obviously a more of an income generating thing. But at the same time, it's not a, you know, we only open three days a week. On a Wednesday, we have a fresh produce market morning where we bring all our own fresh produce and produce from other small growers, all naturally produced and organically grown as far as possible. And then um, we open on a Friday for dinner and a Saturday breakfast and lunch. So our Friday dinner is our main, my wife's tabby, that's her her main occupation is to produce the best quality meal that she can. So it's a very simple uh, menu and um, yeah, using... Whatever we can we can source locally. We've we've got a like a network of, of local suppliers. We get very nice fresh trout, we get fresh fish from Khansba and then obviously when when our when we do slaughter our own pigs we've got fresh free range pork, we use our own naturally reared rabbits. We do our kind of what's become known as our like signature dish is a rabbit risotto, which is from gathering from what people say is is you know, one of the most delicious dishes they've ever had. Which to me is quite a simple dish, but it just shows, you know, how Something simple can be appreciated because of its how it's been produced. Talking of simple things, young Ripley here, who is about two years old, is, is munching her way through some of the some of the fresh peas that yeah. you're growing here. What's the long-term plan? I mean, is she going to take over this farm one day? Or one, one, of, one of the things that I I feel like I'm lacking is sort of agricultural skill and knowledge. I've, everything I know. I, kind of have to learn by making mistakes or you know asking around and so I think if anything goes my way I'll send her off to agricultural college but other than that you know she can do whatever she wants to do but she'll you know she'll learn growing up and I'm sure already you know when I'm working with her in the garden she's there helping me when I'm working with the bees she's there helping me she's she doesn't have any fear you know she she loves running around with the pigs in the pigsty with the chickens so I think you know she'll grow up with that and I mean it's up to her you know 
I would love it if she carried on doing that, and uh, maybe by the time that you know she grows up, she'll know a lot more than what <laughs> what we did, and be able to do it a lot more successfully. So who knows? Well, it was us, most sustainable small-scale farmer Alex Chowler and animals. And if you'd like to find out more, check his Facebook page. It's Gray's Slow Food Cafe. Gray's Slow Food Cafe. And if you do find yourself in Stanford at all, do check out the restaurant out there at number 21 Queen Victoria Street, Stanford. The Enviro Show. And finally here on the show, as promised, substituting our green goodie feature over the next couple of weeks with some green reads, titles that we think you might enjoy over the holidays. And tonight, the first one is called Geology Off the Beaten Track. Author Nick Norman, he'd written an, an earlier book called Geological Journeys, clearly a huge interest as it sold over something like 20,000 copies. Well, he followed it more recently with one called Geology Off the Beaten Track, so let's find out more. Geological Journeys set out to cover a spiderweb of routes across the country. It was successful in that. I think it's, it obviously started with the three main metropolitan areas in the country, included as well as the main routes and those three which are Gauteng, Cape Town and Durban, then the N1, N2, etc. to form the spiderweb and then three main tourist destinations which were the Little Karoo, um, the KZN, Drakensberg and the Mpumalanga Escarpment. And really it was quite a, it was quite a big book um, as it was and I had to leave sections out that I had done the field work for. So it was self-evident that there were a lot of areas that had to be left out. When the first book had done so well, Strake suggested that we should do a second run, but in this case, covering the in-between routes. There were many fairly large blank areas, and um, the intention was to fill those in. Both books consist of routes as well as areas, and there may be quite small areas or there may be big areas, and so there were a number of areas that we included in the second book that take one literally off the beaten track because to an extent the title of the second book geology off the beaten track could be construed as misleading because some of the routes are in fact quite main routes across the country but they're not the routes that people take normally in getting from a to b they might be alternate routes which you might consider as for a bit of variety those that are really off the beaten track in the second book are the richtersfeld and uh, the Tunkwa Karoo, which is spectacular, the Bavians Kloof, and an area around Barberton, which is so worth seeing. Is it a book for the layperson, or is it a book for the person who is a you know a sort of uh, an amateur geologist? I mean, I see one of the chat, one of your uh, subheadings is here is understanding geology. I mean, what sort of a level of understanding of geology do you need to even start with the book? Absolutely none at all, and I must stress from the outset that I dealt in both books with the most fantastic team of editors and my editor, Helen de Villiers, made sure that there's, there's not a, s a sentence in either book that she doesn't understand and she is not, certainly not technical at all. She really took me to task on a number of occasions because I couldn't get the language in such a form that it was easily accessible to her and we just persevered on until we did get it into such a form. And sometimes it was enormously frustrating for me because, as you can imagine, a geologist who spends a lot of his time speaking to his colleagues who all speak the same language finds it impossible to believe that what he's just written is not quite easily accessible. So, yeah, I have to thank Helen for that. And I think the answer to your question is, by the time you've read the introduction and a few of the chapters, uh, you will be an amateur geologist. I suppose what you need to learn is just to open your eyes, because I think for a lot of us, we take what's going on on the ground beneath our feet fairly for granted. Are there very many different types? I mean, can you can you categorise geology into different types of uh, land that we could be looking for? I think so. What I would like to say, which is not really directly answering your question, but which I think does deal with something that you said at the beginning of it, which is that, I think people see a lot that they don't understand, and I, th I think it's not that they, that they take it for granted. It's often that they question, and I think the reason for the success of geological journeys is that until 
seven years ago, there was no place to go for, for the answers that they, that they were looking for. In other words, you drive down the N1 from Johannesburg to Cape Town, and between Langsburg and Mikeysfontein, there's a, a strange feature that almost looks like a, a built wall running across the landscape through one farm after another, so clearly it's not a built wall. But it stands up above the surrounding countryside, and people have over decades asked themselves, now what is that? How did it get like that? But, you know, around Langsburg is a very good place to talk about because as you leave Langsburg heading towards Mikeysfontein, uh, you go through cuttings where the most gorgeous folds are ex exposed. And um, people want to know about those folds. What, what sort of rocks are they? How did they get folded? Were the rocks very hot when it happened? How long did it take? When did it happen? I don't think they've so much taken it for granted as seen what anyone sees and really asked themselves those sort of questions and have had to come away because there was no reference with questions unanswered. Off the beaten track becomes a, an even more appropriate uh, subtitle, if you like, because I think for a lot of people, we spend a lot of time in the cities where actually you don't really see any sort of geological evidence at all because everything's either tarmac or some sort of man-made construction. So you need to get out there and and make note of what it is that you're actually driving through. I think we're a lot of us looking for birds or animals or flowers, but we're not necessarily looking at the land itself. One of the pr uh, purposes of the book to expose the regular traveller to geology? Exactly, and, you know, I think if people can say, as somebody said in a talk that, uh, or at a meeting that I was at the other day, referring to the book, uh, he said, no trip is boring any longer. He had been talking about a drive that he did from Johannesburg down the N12. He said previously he would have found that a terribly dull uh, trip. And he said his wife was driving, and uh, he had the book open on his lap. And he said he found the whole, the whole experience completely exhilarating, being, being able to understand for the first time what he was looking at. The whole ob objective of the book is to bring geology to people as they travel, not to take them anywhere where they weren't going to be anyway. People go to the Richtersfeld not to see geology. They go to, to be in wild places. They go for a, a sort of soul-feeding experience. While they're there, let them see the geology. People go to Sutherland to go to the observatory there. There is amazing geology if you go through the Tankwakaru from Ceres up towards Sutherland and let people add another dimension to their journeys because it really does. You know, the geology doesn't go away. Whatever the weather is doing, if you're a birder, you might be lucky and see the birds that you were hoping to see on any particular stretch. But they may have not arrived yet or they may have hidden because it's not a nice day. But geology is always there to be seen. And I think that whatever your passion, geology just adds a, a wonderful dimension to your experience. Nick Norman, author of Geology of the Beaten Track, and that's published by Straight Nature. Well, that's it. Thanks very much to the team. That's Kim Winter and Rob Parkin, and I'm Nancy Richardson.